passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back, everybody, to Post Wrestling. It is John Pollock here with you. Back in 1992, the World Wrestling Federation was rocked by several scandals, including one that has often just been referred to as the Ring Boy scandal, and it's centered around alleged inappropriate behavior with underage children, solicitation of sex acts by an executive, and was the subject of great scrutiny among the tabloid press in the early 90s and wrestling newsletter coverage. David Bixenspan has dug into the story, uncovering new facts and statements from WWE's longtime legal representative, Jerry McDivitt. He is here to speak about his recent feature on the scandal that's available now at businessinsider.com. David, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So this is a very uh, complex story that goes back decades. Um, I want to kind of just start of, you know, you grew up in the Northeast. And when did you first, like, were you aware of the coverage at the time in the early 90s? Did this kind of precede, like, your awareness at that level of you know, what was going on with the World Wrestling Federation? When did this kind of come onto your radar? Because it's it's a story that I would say even like longtime followers of the product, I think it's maybe sketchy at best, like the the details, the specific ones that you go into in this big feature. Yeah. So, okay. So I'll, I'll answer that last part first, which is that, well, I guess it wasn't a question, but just to elaborate on what you said there, like, yeah, something that I've noticed, like, um, Especially when – I don't know if you saw any of this. On Twitter, there have been uh, – people from this wrestling subforum on Something Awful have done a couple, like, quote-unquote, tournaments where they vote for, you know, worst promotional tactic in WWE history, worst person in WWE history, stuff like that. And stuff like this came up, and there were a ton of people in the forum threads and the Twitter threads saying they had never heard of this. And these are super hardcore fans. So it's mm. – it's something that's below a lot of people's radar. As for me, because I'm from Long Island, even though I was a you know I was a little kid at the time, I was at least somewhat aware of this because I was listening to John Arezzi's radio show and he was very on top of all this. And that was also the time where stemming from some plugs on his show, I had gotten my initial you know sample issues of the Torch and the Observer. And some of that all overlapped, and I think also with maybe one of uh, John Arezzi's, uh newsletter issues too. So, you know, I had an awareness, and then as I got a little older when I still had some of that stuff, rereading it, 
And, you know, until I think more stuff became available on the Internet, I didn't – I don't know how much I came back to it. But, you know, I f- feel like I was pretty at least well-versed in what was out there, you know, like like the retrospectives in The Observer, like some of the contemporaneous newsletter coverage, Tom Cole's interview with Wrestling Perspective from 99 because that had been online for years. So I feel like I knew all that. But I knew obviously there could be more to find, and then it turned out not only was there more to find, but there was stuff that was already out there that had just been kind of forgotten. So a number of the key players involved in this are ones that may ring a bell to people, but I think we should kind of go over sure. kind of the, the primary people involved. And we can start with uh, Mel Phillips. This is someone that uh, you've probably seen him, but – Maybe like, well less lately now that he's edited off of the network as much as possible. Well, that that certainly leads into this. But uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Mel Phillips' role with the company and what he was accused of? Because he really is the kind of well, I will say one of the central figures involved. Yes. So Mel Phillips started on the Marine crew, I believe, in the mid seventies, and at some point, I would say early eighties or thereabouts. He started doing work as a ring announcer. Um, I would say, I don't think it's an exaggeration, that he eventually got to the level of being the number two ring announcer in the company behind Howard Finkel. You know, if you were at a house show and it was not Finkel and it was one of the TV ring announcers, it was usually him. Um, I don't even know if when she was on, if Mike McGurk ever did house shows, actually, now that I think about it. But, you know, he was pretty visible for a while. You know, the first year and a half or so of Wrestling Challenge, he's the ring announcer every single week. Um, Even later on, you know, like the Tokyo Dome shows, you know, with All Japan and SWS, he's the WWF ring announcer on those. You know, and then the other thing I guess people would remember him from would be before he was a TV ring announcer, he was still seen as like a ring attendant taking jackets and stuff on TV And early in Terry Funk's WWF run, I think even his debut, they do a thing where Funk gives him his stuff, and as he's taking it away, Phillips puts the cowboy hat on his head, and Funk beats him up for it. So I guess that's what people would know him from. And then as it would come out in 92, uh, he had been, apparently, because we have multiple allegations of this, uh, abusing children, either, you know, some of this, it's hard to tell if he escalated further with some of them or if this was like a test of his or he took certain risks differently with different people, but either grooming them and asking them to rub their feet on his groin or in some cases, especially with kids who asked if wrestling was fake or otherwise, you know, quote unquote, disrespected the business stomping on their foot or wrenching their toes as like punishment and then sometimes massaging their feet after. Yeah. And like the aspect of like the foot fetish doesn't seem to be like, that is not disputed by anybody. And you're you're talking about children. Like it's pretty alarming to, and I think we should mention out the fact, like we're, we're going to be getting into some uh, graphic details, but I think to, do the story justice you you have have to get into these details i'm sure you'll have the description and stuff so So, i mean that part is 
and, and that seems to be a, a, a bit of the tone you get in, in the feature, David, is the fact that it was this well-known thing. I mean, this is brought up in Bobby Heenan's book, in Bret Hart's book. I mean, this is what Mel Phillips was known for. And the fact that there were children involved, it almost seemed to be like this, almost like a rationalization uh, of of such that, you know, how far beyond this did it go? And it seems like based on the accusations, like that there are accusations that it went a lot further than uh, simply touching feet. It went to a sexual nature. Yeah. And I think, I think part of why also even people who are kind of aware of the scandal aren't aware of that is I think part of it is just Tom Cole because of, you know, the cycle of, unfortunately, of how well this goes for someone who went through that, you know, and the, whether the associated shame and stuff that's there, even though they didn't do anything wrong. Tom Cole is the years went on. He never changed his story, but he would give l- less details when he was talking about what happened. And I think because of that, because, for example, he doesn't actually say what happened that Phillips did to him in the Wrestling Perspective interview, for example. And I think also that, like, some of the other coverage was more, you know, vague at the time. I think just even to people who are decently well read on this, I don't think they realized that that was, like, the main allegation. You know, we have, depending exactly how excuse me, depending on exactly how you read them, although most of these were not known publicly at the time, we have at least three allegations along those lines, and then at least another two with, you know, the foot abuse, you know, kind of more, you know, the you just respected the business stuff. So I think that's And Tom Cole really does become, you know, you also talk about Chris Loss in this feature, but it is Tom Cole throughout this coverage that is the one front and center that is bringing up not just the allegations against Mel Phillips, but also, and this can lead into Terry Garvin as well. And Tom Cole becomes the public face of this scandal in terms of the victim in this. Yes, he's the name that people know if they know a name. Um, So... He was, in you know, many ways, kind of the typical kid that Philip seemed to go after. Kind of a you know broken home, loved wrestling, wanted to find way, way into the wrestling business as an escape. And it was him and Chris Los that talked to Jeff Savage at the San Diego Union Tribune for the article that came out in March '92. And he's the one who would then he did, technically in '92 he did not sue. WWE or, you know, Garvin Phillips or Pat Patterson or anyone else, his lawyer drafted a complaint, which is linked in the article and quoted a little bit. uh, And they settled before it could get to court. And the reason we have the complaint, it was filed as an exhibit later on when uh, WWE sued Phil Moshnick of the New York Post for defamation. So that's why we have that. And he, you know, he comes forward. You know, it basically what happened was he, you know, he was, I believe, living with his older brother, Lee, at the time. This is in like around summer 92. Uh, I think Lee is reading the New York Post with coverage from Phil Mushnick of the Zahorian stuff. And he says something like, what happened with you in the wrestling stuff anyway? And 
Tom at first doesn't really want to talk about it and says something like, oh, it's so much worse than just the steroid stuff. And he ends up telling his brother what happened. And Lee realizes they need to do something about it. He reaches out to Phil Mushnick. Um, Phil Mushnick talks to them. My, I, I, this isn't for certain, but my understanding as to why it went to Jeff Savage is that Jeff Savage was more of a reporter with Phil being more of a columnist. Mm-hmm. And he runs that story. He had not, you know, famously, you know, you look at like the Observer coverage at the time. He had not been able to get any kind of comment from WWE for weeks. Like that story, I believe, was supposed to have originally come out several weeks earlier. And then finally comes out. And then it's like literally within a week or so that you have that. You have Mushnick's coverage of it, blowing it up more. Uh, Vince on Larry King, Vince on Donahue, the Cole settlement. All that's only within like a week or so. Like it's a almost shockingly compressed time frame. And it's really where the, the like for people's knowledge base, it's it's going off of I think a lot of those those media appearances by Vince McMahon that are readily available. And that's kind of people's, you know, your cursory knowledge of this story is probably limited to what you saw on Larry King or the, or the Donahue show, unless you dug further. Yeah. And unfortunately there are also some problems with that too. I mean, one of which namely is that the Donahue episode for whatever reason, don't know why, even though the title of the episode, because I have the official transcript, because the official transcript of that Larry King episode and Geraldo's Now It Can Be Told episode were all exhibits at points of the Mushnick lawsuit, the title of the episode is Pro Wrestling Empire Hit with Teen Boys Sex Scandal. And in spite of that, don't know why, the Ring Boy stuff is barely mentioned in the Donahue episode. It's kind of strange. And. I think that contributes to people's understanding. You know, Larry King, it comes up some, but that's when Vince uh, says this is the first time hearing of it. And also, it's just it's a strange thing to watch in general because Vince is almost playing the heel more. Like, he really doesn't know how to react to this because he's never had this kind of scrutiny. And then he does this 180 in terms of tone on Donahue, you know, three days later. Although... Of course, he knows at that time that he has Tom Cole having settled, but it's like there's not really enough of the information you need there. So I think those being the things people go to first means that when they hear about this stuff, the first thing they're going to think of probably most likely is Murray Hodgson's sexual harassment allegations against Pat Batterson, which turned out to be completely fabricated. So – in terms of Tom Cole, he is someone that, I mean, he has been very limited in, you know, he he did a lot of interviews, a handful of interviews around this particular time. You mentioned the Wrestling Perspective interview in 1999 and would just pop up every now and then. And while his story has never changed, it does seem that his uh, – the responsibility he places, especially on – Linda McMahon ha- has shifted back and forth. And I think that's been, I guess, a-, a cause of Tom Cole and, you know, what his, it's been a very complex relationship with, with the McMahons themselves of what has been, uh, what was their responsibility and what he absolved them of. And it's kind of flipped, you know. Yeah. Times. I mean, 
you know, I wasn't able to talk to him on the record for this. So, you know, I wish I had his current perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to say exactly where it is, but I mean, I, one thing I can tell you that I know, like, I remember, I believe there was like a, I think it was a comment maybe on Irv Mushnick's blog back in 2010 when really the last anyone heard from him publicly. Well, I shouldn't say that. He did a, he did an interview with Mike Mooneyam right after that too. That was a little bit more in depth, but, uh, it was either he or his brother, I forget which, posted a comment like, thinking that Irv Mushnick had given their phone number out to other reporters when it was, you know, no, they, at the time, they would just wouldn't have realized that reporters use databases like LexisNexis and things like that to find that kind of stuff. And you get the vibe, though, that he didn't really want to talk to reporters, just generally. So it it seems like that may have been part of why he just kind of, at the time, it seemed like he wanted to just in one fell swoop make sure that no one was talking to him again. But that's that's kind of spitballing on my part, just kind of gleaning from the other information. But well, in the in I, I believe it's a wrestling perspective interview. I mean, he does talk about having a pretty bad experience with uh, the Geraldo program. Not now it can be told, and just seeing this as like you know this is you know he's just a prop here for this show and i think that was the experience he took away and i i guess you could understand in in his situation that it becomes very easy to just uh paintbrush all of the media as just looking at him as just their latest story yeah absolutely i mean there's other reasons too like not only that which was that you know as the way both coles have described it uh Brooke Skolsky, who was one of the producers, basically said, if you don't give me an interview, I'm going to camp out on your lawn. And obviously you can see why you would give in to that. But, you know, at the time, even Tom had the wherewithal to demand that they write up a contract that the interview could only be aired after he filed a lawsuit, which is why the interview never aired, although he still had to get his lawyer to file a restraining order to keep it from airing because they were still going to try to air it in spite of having a signed contract that said he had to file a lawsuit first. But I mean, they've been burned too. You know, this is something that's talked about a lot, but in 93 NBC news, it was a show that's not on anymore. It was one of the various zillion like Sunday night, you know, news magazine shows they've had over the years. They were going to do a major feature on all this. And this is in 93. So this is like leading into when Vince is indicted leading up to steroid trial. This is, you know, over a year and a half after all the initial coverage. And that story ends up kind of dissolving. It's seeming in part because of the actions of Marty Bergman, who it would turn out was the husband of one of the defense attorneys for McMahon, WWF, Laura Brevetti, excuse me, fiance at the time, but which was a thing no one really knew. And he was involved with helping plant stories and stuff. And there was this big story in the New York Observer that was trying to frame it like they were blowing this story and it was going to be like their next version of the exploding truck story that got them sued. About, defect, about defective trucks that turned out to not be entirely true and 
it, there's this whole, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds because there's this whole thing with that story where there's an old WWF employee who had had a tape that apparently showed Phillips wrestling with kids in the background or something. And there was this whole rigmarole over the guy wanting to send it to NBC and then stopping it. And then the prosecutors investing it, picking it up. But anyway, like that was all kind of twist, twisted into this thing where it's the, as far as anyone could tell, got the story killed. So you can absolutely see a number of reasons why both Coles or really anyone else involved seeing what else happened might have a reticence, you know, whether to talk or whatever. Uh, so just keeping this on the timeline. So Tom Cole in mm-hmm. 1992 ultimately ends up settling with WWF, gets his old job back, and then remains in the company until June of 1993 when he uh, receives a letter and Linda McMahon in, informs him that they're very disappointed. They had been paying for his schooling. He's not doing very well. And he's he's ultimately let go in June of 93. Is that accurate? Yeah, we probably should double back to talk about the Terry Garvin thing, though. Yeah, why don't, why don't we uh, go over the uh, the Terry Garvin aspect? Yeah, so Terry Garvin, real name Terry Joyelle, you know, wrestler going back to the late 50s, I believe. If As far as I know, I think it, Pat Patterson and him were childhood friends, even. Um, the story goes that it was them and Chin Lee all grew up in the same neighborhood, and then in you know their teens and early adulthood, all went to Boston together to break into wrestling through uh, Tony Santos's promotion. And you know he had been a fairly big name wrestler. You know the worked brother of Ron and Jimmy Garvin. You know he was the original. It was then he was teaming with Ron and Jimmy, who was Ron's stepson, and was like seventeen or eighteen at the time. Uh, was their manager. And he sort of started in the you know, like late 70s, transitioning into office roles, working in Kansas City and Amarillo and other places like that. And at some point after Patterson got into power, I'm not sure exactly when, in the WWF, Garvin was brought on as basically his number two. And this is where it gets a little tricky to try to figure out. Clearly, there's some awareness that there's something going on with him. It's just hard to know exactly what. Because for years, on more so on, I would say, like the house show announcing, there would always be these jokes about certain wrestlers being graduates of the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense. Yes. Which, like, like I've said when this has been brought up other times, is that simply a homophobic joke? Because... They knew he was having relationships with men or trust with men. Or is it something more sinister because, you know, the self-defense part? I don't know. It ages ages terribly. It ages terribly either way. It ages Um, terribly regardless. But you're right. I don't know if, like, you can make that leap of how prevalent this was known beyond, you know, the homosexual aspect. how how widespread was this known? But it certainly opens up that debate. Right, right. So, you know, there are other stories, too. Um, in Shauna Sale and Mike Mooney's book, Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, they quote Nelson Swegler, who, if I'm remembering right, ran TV for WWF before Kevin Dunn. And as the book frames, it was also an operations manager of some kind for WWF. 
he described seeing uh, Terry Garvin, like he said, he, I think he went into like a tour bus and found Terry Garvin. The words he used were hard at it with someone he described as a ring boy. But I mean, he didn't give an age or anything. But, you know, we need to mention, too, Garvin was Phillips's direct superior. Yeah, that, that's a part that often gets overlooked is like the power dynamic in all of this as well that Terry Garvin holds over a Tom Cole or others. Right. So Tom Cole had, you know, up to up until like 1990, from the time he started going on the road at times in like 85, 86, I think it, I think 85 is when the complaint he filed said he had just been, you know, a day labor ring setup guy, you know, and ring attendant. You know, he wasn't I mean, not that he would be an employee anyway, necessarily for a lot of this, but still he was not. And how do I put it? It's not like how, you know, Tony Chimmel was on the ring crew or people like that in terms of it being like their job. You know, he's just a guy that's being, I, th- I think, like hired out of a ma- money that Phillips and whoever are given to pool. In 1990, he got a job as the where as a warehouse manager at the WWF warehouse, and the day before he's supposed to first report to work, uh, Terry Garvin invites him over to his house to go over ring crew assignments because he's still doing that work as well, but I guess on a more formal basis, and turns on a porn movie and basically starts propositioning him. And according to Tom Cole's account, he basically runs out of there, sleeps outside in the van, and then goes to the warehouse where Mel Phillips fires him and basically says, you know why, or something to that effect. And should know, too, so Tom Cole's 19 at this time, in 1990. Mm-hmm. He says there was also a similar incident with Garvin when he was 16 as well. And at least in their email to us, uh, WWE doesn't really seem to be denying that either. Yeah, th- this is the uh, the state one of the statements that Jerry McDivitt provided uh, the, the article here. The only persons implicated were not senior officials nor were there any claims of anything approximating conventional forms of sexual abuse such as rape, sodomy, etc. Instead, claimed Mel Phillips had a foot fetish and played with his feet. He also claimed that any allegations against the McMahons were, quote, classic libel. Well, I guess here is where we should get into why that's a very strange thing to say. Well, okay, look, the first part of the quote is a strange thing to say no matter what. And as someone who, regardless of any conflicts here, thinks that Jerry McDevitt is an excellent lawyer. I have no idea why he said that thing about conventional forms of sexual abuse. Like at at its very base, there is no disputing that this was a man in Mel Phillips with a foot fetish around young children. And that alone is alarming. Um, Yes. To say the absolute least, if that's the foundation that we're working on for any kind of a defense. Right. Even if we're even if everyone's conceding that that's true, which it seems like. They are to some degree. Then what are they even saying that it was wasn't criminal, but he did something like I don't even get what what, exactly what they're saying there. But so here's the thing, though, and we needed to get this anyway, and it's something I want to talk about a bit. So what I'm about to say has always been out there. And for some reason, everyone just forgot about it, like I kind of alluded to up front when we started. So 
about a week or so before the story breaks in 92, um, Vince McMahon has phone calls with both Dave Meltzer and Phil Mushnick. This is before Phil Mushnick is his mortal enemy. He's trying to good cop him. And he tells both of them, let me uh, actually pull up the right part of the article so I'm using the exact language. Uh, so during those calls, and he would write about this a couple weeks later, Mushnick would, after seeing Vince say on Larry King that he had no idea anything was happening, I'll just read the quote. This is what he wrote in his column, which in on that day was the cover story for the sports section of the Post. All right. This is Phil Mushnick. Yes. Two weeks ago, during poor his hard-out phone calls, McMahon, uh, McMahon told West Coast-based journalist Dave Meltzer, then me, that he had let Phillips go four years ago because Phillips' relationship with the kid seemed peculiar and unnatural. McMahon said he rehired Phillips with the caveat that Phillips steer clear for kids. And Dave told me that that was an accurate account of his phone call with uh, with Vince as well. And, you know, when Vince would then sue Mushnick in the Post in Mushnick's deposition, he would expand a bit on that. You know, he would recall that Vince said that it was he and Linda who made the decision together. And... No, at no time in the past almost 29 years since all this happened, that since this phone call, the only acknowledgement that this happened from the WWE side that I can find, whether it's media, court records, or, you know, now this correspondence, you know, leading up to this article, the only acknowledgement of that conversation is asking him about it in the deposition. And even then, it's not in a combative way. They've never denied this, they, but they've never really acknowledged it. And the other thing that's very strange about it is everyone forgot. I don't know why. I mean, part of it is that I think that – and this is the part I really don't understand. Dave and Phil didn't make it a big part of their coverage. You know, with Phil's thing, it's just one of many lies he's saying Vince McMahon told. With Dave, it's a little less clear. I remember asking him when I first when I talked to him originally for this article, he couldn't remember why it hadn't been a bigger deal and why it wasn't really talked about later. But like, and I'm not saying this to crap on or blame Dave or anything, but like, it never ended up in any of his retrospectives on this, and he's done a few. It it's not in any real narrative you can find about all this, even though it was all out there. Um, I mean, there's parts that's a little weird, like Dave, when he writes about like Phil's column, he leaves out what Phil said about him. And when he had, he had like a week or two earlier kind of alluded to the conversation with Vince, like, but it was one of those things where if you didn't know this part, it wasn't clear what he was talking about, but would become clear in hindsight. And as a result, like, Something that should be front and center of what everyone knows just has been buried. Like, I don't remember ever hearing anyone mention this until I started researching this a while back. Yeah, and this is – I mean this is mentioned in the in the, uh, the, the the Geraldo piece. Like, they just – they briefly do know yes. that he was let go in 1988 but then quickly rehired 
uh, but they they don't really expand upon it beyond that. Right. Or that Vince admitted it. I don't I'm not sure if they even mentioned. I don't think so. Um, and that and that becomes like a very important part to the story is that he was let go in 1988. And ultimately, like there has to be a reason for that. And and that that's, you know, a, a key part of this that I'll, I'll be honest, like I was not aware of that 1988 firing. So it's something that has not been a big part of the story. Yeah. And even at the time, like I remember asking Dave when I talked to him and, you know, he gave me that confirmation and stuff. He told me that he wasn't even aware that until that conversation with Vince, he was, he was gone and back so quickly that I don't even know if the wrestlers would have known. Um, the only thing that like visibly changed really was that he wasn't the ring announcer on wrestling challenge anymore. And do you feel any of that is a a hesitation that there was not the, the, the ability to prove that this, that this had actually happened. Like this is obviously Vince McMahon in 1992. He's giving this statement as, damage control that he's yes he's like that's where he's coming from even though yeah. it is actually serving the opposite um like i i just look at it that were they taking vince mcmahon at face value that he had actually let him go in 88 versus that this was him simply using this as a defense it's, like it's you, difficult do you, do you think like the context of it is why maybe it wasn't treated as a bigger deal at the time is kind of what you're asking i guess i'm just looking at like what was the context of this phone call? like was this vince mcmahon speaking to them on the record and yes. knowing that these articles are coming yeah. knowing that these articles are coming um are they looking at it as do we have any proof that mel phillips was actually let go uh, knowing this is 92 in the absence of the ability to go back and look at him, he disappears for however many weeks it is and come yeah. back. Uh, like, as you were stating, like, you've gone through everything and it's very hard to find any any records of this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's something missing here because, like, once the story had broken and everyone's kind of taken seriously – what they did or didn't know is the story Mm -hmm. that that's what puzzles me with this like people who are otherwise doing a fairly good job covering this story just didn't treat this as a big deal like again even mushnick like do you like i feel like i mean granted mushnick i think as time went on did not he did not do nearly good enough job explaining the issues he had with the company and that allowed them, you know, more attitude era type time to kind of cast him as that villain to the fan base. And he certainly didn't help himself with the comments he made about wrestling fans that he later apologized for. But like, I would think like once they kind of declared me their motoral enemy, like you would think that, Phil Mushnick would have like shouted from the rooftops. You know, Vince said this to me on the record. So I just can't wrap my head around that because that once everything else is out there, that's the story, you know, other than if, you know, law enforcement was going to look into this and charge Phillips or anyone else, you know, it's what did they know? When did they know it? And I, I just don't understand how that could not only a be 
downplayed, even if not intentionally, but also just disappear from the narrative. Like, there is no good reason that even with not that many people knowing about this, there's no good reason that the people who were at least working, had a working familiarity, didn't know this consistently for the past quarter century plus. So why don't you talk a little bit about like the fallout of this, the departures from the company and how this is ultimately, uh, you know, kind of comes to its conclusion uh, without any, without any charges. And it's largely like, this is the disappearance of Terry Garvin and Mel Phillips for the rest of their lives. Yes. Well, Almost, because I found it's this. Right. It's not in the article. I don't know if you saw. Uh, well, I guess from what you said just now, you saw what I tweeted the other day. Um, one of the things I found in my research didn't go in the article because there was really no point in it or place for it. Uh, Mel Phillips tried to run an indie promotion in 1997, including shows at a middle school. And in, in a commission state, too. Is Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I guess it is New Hampshire as a commission state. And... The one article I found about it from the Nashua newspaper, uh, no one seems to have any idea about the allegations against him. And it didn't seem like the promotion was around long because I could only find one set of results for one show in The Observer. and It was a different show from the one that's mentioned in the newspaper article. And I'm assuming that most people, you know, outside of the immediate, you know, New England scene that were actually working those shows just didn't realize it was him, which is why that never came up in any of the newsletters. So he does reemerge briefly there. Um, and then later, you know, he, he defaults on his storage unit and that's where, you know, the belt, Mr. Perfect destroyed. That's how that ended up in collector's hands. And like, I know, I think Tom Burke had a bunch of like his records as far as like old schedules and stuff. Like, as far as I know, nothing incriminating or anything in there, but that's, like, really all anyone heard of him. And, like, at times people wondered if he died, but he died in 2012, but no one knew because he was completely gone from wrestling and everything. There's not even, like, a tiny local obituary. Since the article came out, just give me a bit of a sense of what the response has been like and – uh, have you been surprised at, you know, certain aspects that have been focused on more than others? Tell us a little bit about the feedback you've received. And it's mostly been positive. I mean, I've seen a couple, you know, like on Reddit and stuff, kind of, oh, this old story type of things, not realizing that there's a lot of new and newly uncovered and rediscovered stuff in there. But overall, it's been positive. Um, you know, definitely seeing some of the, you know, people who just didn't know that it existed at all. Um, kind of th- like one of the things that really stuck out to people, even though, you know, in a, there are really, I mean, I don't want to give like levels of it, but things that would really be more shocking, I guess, is the story Chris Lowe's had told Tom Cole's lawyer about how he had shouted out to Honky Tonk Man using his real name, I guess saying, hey, Wayne, or something like that. And then Phillips stepping on his foot very hard. And then when he complained, Phillips just ripping his shoe off and rubbing his foot while muttering that he shouldn't have called Honky Talk Man his real name. That seems to be like a thing that just really stuck with people. Um, just because it's so weird and creepy. Like, I think the, the the just strangeness of it makes it jump out. 
even if there are things that are more like viscerally horrifying. Um, that's the thing I've seen people mention a bunch. Uh, one thing I want to point out too, because I most of the feedback has, I don't, not sure anyone has. Like, there are a lot of documents that have never been available before that are linked in the story. Um, one is even a little bit of an Easter egg because when we talk about the law enforcement stuff, there's an FBI memo that I linked, but I actually linked the whole WWF FBI file that I had, which is like 340 pages. Yeah, so if there's anyone, a lot you uncovered here. Yeah. So if anyone wants to take a look at that, like that's there. Um, but you know, like even though parts quoted the whole Linda McMahon, uh, termination letter to Tom Cole is in there. And you know, as far as stuff that's linked, you know, tra- the, all three of those TV show transcripts I mentioned, uh, I mean, I'm forgetting off the top of my head just because of how many edits we went through, but like the only stuff that's not, linked is stuff where we would have had concerns over redactions and stuff so you know the interview transcripts with chris Lowe and his friend with cole's lawyer uh mustick's deposition transcript um what was the other one? Oh, and the lawsuit stuff filed by the guy who filed the lawsuit in 99 that had not come forward before which no one knew about until uh huffington post mentioned in late 2016 um which that also led to one of the weirder WWE responses when we reached out. If you could go into that for a second while I take a sip of water. Yeah. So um, this was, you know, a essentially a case that, that came up and Jerry McDivitt uh, responded to David talking about this 1999 case that I guess there was like a quiet dismissal. Of the suit, is that accurate? I mean, it, quiet in that no one knew about it at the time. Yeah, and, and like it's no almost, one knew about and this for Jerry McDivitt years. is somewhat um, like trying to just recollect if there was even a case in 1999. It seems that it's like very, very vague in terms of the, like the the memory of this case, uh, much less the conclusion of it. Yeah, which I find kind of, I mean strange because like he worked on this case and we mentioned that in the article like it's you know look he's obviously he's done a lot of work for them i'm it wouldn't shock me if there was a genuine memory lapse there and it just happened to be you know something in the moment that someone might forget about but they must have a list of all these somewhere I would think. This is what Jerry McDivitt says in the feature. Quote, I have no recall of that suit. This is in regards to the 1999 one. As it was no doubt a frivolous claim. I do know that we did not settle any other claims in 1999 or at any other time regarding such matters. The simple truth is that despite all the publicity in the early 90s and the existence of a thorough federal investigation, Tom Cole and to a much lesser degree, Chris Chris Lose are the only people who made foot fetish claims against Mel Phillips. End quote. Uh Two things there. One, that does sound oddly specific at the end. Two, ten years ago when Politico did their story when Linda McMahon had her first Senate campaign, he said there were three ring boy settlements. Well, and as you go on in the article to state that a motion to dismiss the case filed by WWE, uh, the date is listed April 2000, that they that, that motion is filed and signed by Jerry McDivitt. And I mean, he's very specific to the year that there were no, uh, there were no settlements in 1999. 
Well, no. There, if, if that case was settled, it was not in 1999. It was in 2001 when the case was dismissed, if there was a settlement. And, you know, look, it says in the article, we reached out to that guy and he said he couldn't talk because he had an NDA, mm-hmm. which is the same thing that he said to Huffington Post. Right. So, I mean, he states, yeah, here, there's, there's no... They did not settle any other claims in 99 or at any other time regarding such matters. So I guess that is right. So, uh, yeah, it's not just limited to 99. Yeah. So I, I just I honestly don't know what to think of that because I have the records and, you know, we have this allusion to an NDA. And then if you look at the docket from the case, it has the hallmarks of a settlement that, you know, if you know what to look for, you see it. I suppose it's theoretically possible it's not, but it's where there's a. I believe it was a joint filing for dismissal with prejudice, which, you know, with prejudice means you can't refile. And if it's joint, jointly, then they would have come to an agreement, I think. So I'm not sure what to make of this. I mean, we didn't include the name in that part in the email, but I, I don't know how he wouldn't, A, know this fairly easily, because I got to think this is one of the topics he knows like the back of his hand. But also, that it would be easy to still find out regardless. So I I just don't I just don't get that part at all. Like that that just was very strange. Looking at this uh, feature, uh, you know, just like the larger uh, preparation for something this deep. Can you just give like our listeners a sense, David, of like the time that went into this, and also like the the manpower as well to to put together something like this and like just g- give me a sense as well like from a the perspective of a freelance journalist needing to have like a a, a major company to do to do this on their their platform as well okay so where should i start with that um i know it's a kind of loaded question yes that's okay i mean as far as the last part i mean like could you have done this on your own no. So no. I, I, that's essentially what I, I'm going at here. And I think that's important to look at as well in a lot of these complicated stories that, I mean, there have been no shortage of this year related to professional wrestling. Yeah. And I, I think it's a good opportunity to talk about that, you know, real quick that, I mean, there's a few things going on there. I mean, that there is that you need some kind of institutional support really to do this right. Because, you know, look, even if nothing else, to be able to reach out to people for comment, I needed, you know, a place that had a date, you know, a subscription to a database like Alexis Nexus or something similar to be able to get people's contact info. That's if nothing else, you know, um, but also just in general, like having an experienced editor like John Cook, who I thought did a phenomenal job, um, you know, having, the, you know, a legal review. Having legal support if something were to happen. Like, these are all really important things. And then also to dovetail with speaking out and all that. Um, I won't say who, but there was a fairly well-known women's wrestler I was talking to recently who said something to me that it, it was something I kind of had a feeling of, but no one had ever really said to me outright that. When mainstream reporters reach out to women in wrestling about, you know, topics related to sexual misconduct and similar things, they tend not to trust them if they're people who don't really know wrestling. Hmm. But then on the flip side, they 
know that people who cover the wrestling beat are not necessarily going to have either the skill set or the institutional support or anything like that to do that correctly. So, like, it's very clear why me, it was almost at me too, which was to a degree, but uh, speaking out had to be this self-driven movement. Like, it, it was never going to go a different way whenever something like that was going to happen. And, I mean, also, unfortunately, it's all of that together is also complicated covering it because, you know, aside from some of the UK stuff done carefully because of the investigations and all that, there's been very little mainstream coverage because it doesn't really fit into the model of how a mainstream outlet will cover sexual assault and sexual harassment these days, you know, which is – if you're getting a specific allegation from an individual, you know, you go to, you know, who are the people you've told before? Do you have a contemporaneous outcry? You know, I mean, you investigate it as best you can. And if it all points in one direction, then you seem to have a legitimate story. Um, but because of all the factors we just discussed, that's not going to happen with a lot of this stuff, unfortunately. and. I mean, look, there needs to be – I don't know what the answer is on this, on how we can do this better, short of, you know, like, look, um, I need to look into it more. I've only started to. Like, Freelancers Union apparently has gotten a group liability insurance plan that covers defamation. You know, it's not gigantic. I want to say it caps out, including legal fees, at like $2 million, which, mm-hmm. if yes, that is not gigantic by by that standard. Um you know, so that's obviously something that would help. And I mean, also, you know, this story involves male victims, but fact of the matter is, until we have more female reporters on this beat, there's always going to be that kind of reticence, too. And understandably so. Like, do I, I mean, am I thankful for her and very respectful of, like, women who have confided things in me in wrestling? Absolutely. But it, I can't go around to other people and start asking because I'm just a straight white dude. I'm not, you know what I mean? I can't just go to them. I'm not going to have the inherent trust that another woman would. So investigating these type of things around wrestling is unfortunately a much more uphill battle than it would be really anywhere else that has its own kind of, you know, large, you know, reporter beat like wrestling does. What's and we we can and then the other part too yes so I'm not sure if that's where you wanted to go just now with the no no that the, no that, preparation for the article yeah I guess g- give us a sense of like the like I, I imagine this is like months worth of research and digging and interviews uh, that go into this but I'm just kind of curious about um, that process and and maybe even just like what was the impetus to dive into this in, in terms of like what did you just feel like there were aspects to this that were not widely reported on like where where is square one on a story like this for you so it's there i put a lot of time into this but with the caveat that some of it was on and off originally but like just to give you an idea this was originally a dead spin store okay so like that gives you an idea of how like originally how long and then you know i ended up going to business insider after everything you know imploded there and you know between covid and other stuff stuff got delayed but it was for the best because, like, for example, Mel Phillips's 
former friend that we source in the article, like I would not have had access to that person, you know, for the story because they didn't come along through a referral from someone else until fairly late. So that was all for the best. But yeah, a lot went into this. I mean, you know, you know, when I talk about film archives, I went to the dude's house. Like he let me go through all of his wrestling centric boxes in his attic. Let me borrow the stuff I couldn't scan that day. Like, so that was part of it. Um, you know, we had pulled both the, Geraldo and the Mushnick slash New York Post lawsuits, which, you know, had a lot of useful stuff in them, like the, you know, original Tom Cole complaint. And then, you know, Phil had other stuff like, like his deposition, like he had a copy of the Cole settlement. He had the Linda letter, which I think were things he, the things that weren't public, I think, like the Tom Cole centric stuff, I think he got from the Coles, like around, like when all their depositions were being taken and not like, late 93. So, you know, there was that, you know, there were, you know, I don't even remember. I don't think it was with this in mind, actually, when I filed the freedom of information act request on the whole like WWF file. That's it. And, you know, that one is mostly about steroids and related stuff, but you know, there, you know, I had to do that and wait on that. And, you know, I had filed the separate one about Phillips once I had the proof of death for him, which, you know, that's a whole other can of worms that's addressed in the story. But, you know, a lot of that type of stuff in there, certain interviews, you know, some that I was, you know, sitting on for a while. And it was a lot of work. And then we went through a lot of, you know, editing and kind of smoothing things over with this. And, you know, look, there's other stuff I'd like to be able to talk about with this. But, you know, as I was, you know, reminded by my editor, not in like a negative way, but like it's a dense story with a lot of names. So, to make it a more readable story, there's stuff that could be in there that's not, you know, is, like, go ahead. is there a lot uh, that you could find like beyond like the New York Post coverage and, you know, the sporadic articles like like did something like the Times, the New York Times, like even touch this at, at the time? Like today, this is, you know, this is a massive scandal if this happens today. And even I think, in wrestling. Right. Yeah. Uh, like if, this, if, this if, certainly if, gets outside okay. the, the bubble. Um, yes. of pro wrestling uh, in a big degree. But at the time, like this really feels like it was confined to newsletter coverage, the post and your, and you know, your, your Donahue's and uh, current affairs. I mean, pretty much, you know, um, New York times, I don't think did anything. LA times did a story. I, uh, I think it was Houston Mitchell, you know, longtime observer mm-hmm. subscriber and, I can't remember who the other one was. It might have been John Cherwa, because I think it was a collaboration, but it might be someone else. They did an L.A. Times story, but it was focused on the drug stuff with, like, a passing reference to the other articles that had come out that week, because it was from that week in March 92. Um, Yeah, as far as national papers, um, I think that's it. Uh you know, other national news coverage, again, it was mostly tabloid shows and daytime talk shows. Like, it's strange, but it's not because it's wrestling. Like yeah, and, said, I, and I think everyone should watch that Donahue show. And, like, you can see in the tone of Phil Donahue that this is a this is a very serious story. Like, there's no, there's no punchline to any of this. And yet you can see in his handling of this, like, part of it, like, this guy is a talk show host, but he is, like – 
injecting like humor lines into into different parts. It's almost like look what's happening at the circus. Like that's sort of the backdrop to to that very serious subject matter. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he overall did a good job with that episode. I mean, aside from the weirdness of that the episode is named after the Ring Boy scandal, but doesn't really mention it for the most part. But, you know, I think that's more just his style. Like, I feel like overall he treated it with the correct gravity. But really, you see towards the end when they're taking the audience questions. Uh, Isn't wrestling fake? Like, that That's yeah. that really sums up, I think, what the public's – like, the public at large and what their conclusion is. And I probably – that probably informs your answer about the larger coverage that, you know, if this was happening in Major League Baseball or a major entertainment company, a television studio – this would have been treated with a lot more coverage at the time, but this is professional wrestling in 1992. Yeah, I mean, her exchange, that audience member with Donahue, and I have the transcript up here. And, you know, it's online, too, if you want to watch it. But for right now, it's she asks, isn't wrestling fixed anyway? And Donahue responds, isn't wrestling fixed anyway? No, that's, you know, that's a creative decision who wins. You know, the snake loses, the good guy wins. This is about crime. This is about breaking the law. And he's right. And, you know, to his credit, he treated it seriously. Um, Again, part of it is probably that there were stories being worked on that just did get killed or whatever. You know, I believe there was a CBS Evening News feature. I I always forget how much of that was related to the, you know, Titan Gate sexual harassment and sexual abuse scandals and how much was steroids because – I think that's the one where I had tweeted that clip of Vince saying that basically everyone's out to get him. I think that's what that's from. So it probably did allude to some of this, but I don't know. It's like in the TV stuff, like aside from that part at near the end of the Now It Can Be Told episode, I'm not sure Tom Cole's name is ever mentioned. And, you know, the brief mention on Larry King, too. Or I don't think Chris Lowe's name is mentioned once. You know, like they're... I don't know if it's because of the interview availability. Probably a lot of it is, but it seemed like the TV coverage ended up mostly focusing on Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin. Yeah, I I would imagine a lot of people reading your your feature are hearing about uh, Chris Lowe's for the first time. Like, I don't think that's a a very widely known uh, name that's attached to this story. Right. And clearly by his design, he clearly didn't, I don't think, wanted to be front and center for this. Like, he is very much, you know, detached from this as Tom Cole becomes kind of your front-facing victim of the scandal. Yeah, um, he he did, yeah. He just kind of vanished pretty quickly after everything broke. Like, clearly, you know, obviously he was a participant in that first story, but he just, no one ever hears from him again, really. You know, you know, I have it in the story. You know, Mike Sawyer saying, you know, they had been friends, but... You know, he kind of went to talk with WWE, came back and just seemed like a different guy. And then I think after a while, they just never heard from him again. Uh, I'll finish up on this. So in light of the recent news of a Vince McMahon documentary series on Netflix, what is your thought process on this being broached at all in that documentary series? Would you say likely or unlikely? Okay, so I'm going to give a caveat on this. I think 
I think there is a decent likelihood of them addressing Titan Gate in some form, but not specifically this. I think they will address it in some larger, broader fashion if they do where they center on stuff like Murray Hodgson's, you know, discredited allegations against Pat Patterson, Billy Graham retracting his allegation that he saw Pat Patterson grabbing a kid's crotch. Uh, that would be my gut that if they address it at all. Um, and the reason I say that is because, um, was in the last couple of weeks, Lavi Margolin tweeted pictures from the 50th anniversary of WWE book they put out in 2013, which I think I have here, but I've never really read and going, talking about the steroid trial and stuff. And I, I think they mentioned some of this stuff in passing. And they also allude to stuff that like is really clearly more about the ring boy scandal and stuff like that, but kind of conflated with the steroid scandal. Like the big example being, I should mention this. This is not in the article, but this is something that endlessly fascinates me. They were obsessed with in, I believe, the same column that had the initial description of his conversation with Vince that Phil Mushnick had said that Hannibal Lecter was the only fictional character that came close to being as evil as Vince McMahon was. And when I say obsessed, they mentioned it. You know, two decades later in that book, in that chapter about how ridiculous it was that he'd say that they mention it endlessly in the lawsuit. Uh, they mentioned it constantly in any interviews, like when Linda McMahon talked to Mike Mooneyham uh, a few months after the lawsuits filed. They just uh, kept bringing that up. I think there was even a resp- response from the spokesman at the time, Steve Planamena, that addressed it. Like, maybe getting that went wrong, but they just kept bringing this up over and over. And even, like, and it's one of those things that makes you wonder about the whole Russo arrival in WWE, not to open that can of worms, but, like, clearly they had his ear, it seems like, back in 92, because when he briefly has his own newsletter and he's going off on the scandal coverage and he's going off on Mushnick, one of the big things he really tries to attack is that line. So like they have their certain quirks that I think depending on how many episodes it is and how comprehensive it is, it would not be surprising for me to bring for them to bring it up in a very limited, like hagiographic form, if that makes sense. But I, the, the thing that also I'm really curious about with that documentary is also the timeline relative to when it'll come out relative to when Craig Marks and Rob Tannenbaum's WWE oral history book will come out because, and I'm guessing they're regretting this if they're now uh, doing this, you know, multi-episode Vince documentary that they sold to Netflix because while they have WWE access, uh, Marks and Tannenbaum, you know, they've interviewed Vince and stuff and they have access to, I think, records and photos and all that. They're not beholden to WWE at all. WWE has no control over that book. And I'm wondering with this announcement of this documentary series, besides, you know, what you talked about last week on some of the shows about how probably the Undertaker documentary being well-received made them more likely to sell something like this. But it makes me wonder if they're regretting giving Craig Marks and Rob Tannenbaum that kind of access over something they can't control 
and want to make sure they have some kind of Vince bio out there that they can control. It's a really perplexing one. Like, where is the need for them to go that route of giving giving up control for a Vince McMahon project? Like, it it sounds like stunning when you when you lay it out like that. Well, I mean, technically, it's a WWE oral history, but still, like, that's not how they do things. Like, especially these days. Like, especially after you know, Wrestling with Shadows and Beyond the Mat. Granted, those are movies, but it seemed like they were never going to give up that kind of control to anyone again. So when, you know, the news broke that they were doing this book that had the access but were not beholden to them, I mean, it was shocking. You know, that book's still a while from coming out. Last I heard, they're still doing the interviews. But, you know, if they're doing a extensive, you know, a Netflix-level, Netflix-quality documentary series that's going to take quite a while too um so it's going to be interesting to see those two things battling and then also i think that this documentary is happening in this form that makes me think also that they're not going to try to pursue the you know fictionalized dramatized uh vince movie and that they just brought that bought that weird script to kill it which have you read that script? Oh, I I read the one that yeah came. You out. saw the yeah I mean and you yeah. saw the key part. It yeah, was like it was not a good script, but clearly there were some people interested in it, and I got to think they bought it just so no one would make it. And you know what? what? Like, understandably so. Like it wasn't even like a thing of it being controversial. It was just bad and weird. Well. Uh... Dave, I want to give you the forum here of where everyone can go check this out if they haven't already. Uh, you can go to businessinsider.com. I understand there's also an, uh, a version of Business Insider in India if, if people want to seek that out. And I do let people know about uh, all that they can listen to at Between the Sheets. Yes. Okay. So businessinsider.com has the article um, at the moment is behind their paywall. Uh, Business Insider India apparently does not, uh, which is – I don't know why, but it has the same article. So, you know, look, I'll say that. I'll put it this way. Um, I'll, I'll say it for you. Like like this, as, as David outlined here, and one of the reasons I want to ask the question is that you, you don't just turn this out overnight. This requires yeah. a ton of work, and it goes beyond just David's work. It's a lot of people. And if you want, like, reporting like this, it doesn't come with no cost. Like, there is a value to this. And like, do support this kind of work if if it's the kind of stuff that you are seeking out. It's, you know, it's a very different time in this media landscape where I think people are becoming much more comfortable. Our site is a direct benefactor of that, where people are willing to spend money on things that they support. So, uh, by all means, go support this. I'm not like advocating to get around. Paywalls, well, I know, but... I know. I mean, it's you know, as as someone who wants people to read my story, I want people to read it no matter what, but. Like, yeah, like I was going to say, like, you know, look, they they're I mean, they have reinvested the money they've made from the subscriptions doing well into hiring a lot more reporters, being able to pay so that I can actually devote time to something like this article. Like if you're able to at least do like the month trial, like for a dollar thing, please do it. I mean, if if you're not that I understand and just pull up the version on Business Insider India, and you're fine. But, it, you know, it would... 
I, like I said, you know, this doesn't go to me, but it allows them to be able to do stuff like this. And the fact that they've clearly reinvested it so much in more reporters, being able to pay freelancers like me well, et cetera, like, I really do kind of admire that. So, you know, if you can, please do that. If you're not able to or just looking for a link you can click on, um, the Indian version, for whatever reason, seems to be good. I'm, I'm guessing it's an economy thing where they just don't have a paywall there. But uh, check that out. And then as far as my other stuff, so yes, Between the Sheets podcast that myself and Chris Elner do every week, where we go over how a given week in history was covered in the wrestling newsletters. Uh, the new episode that just came out looks at 1995, the week of both Halloween Havoc 95 with the monster trucks and giant falling off the roof and the Yeti and all that. Oh, and Lex Luger turning heel in the background of Jimmy Hart's heel turn. Can't forget that one. Uh, that's part of this week's coverage. Uh, the ECW fire incident. It, well, ECW arena fire incident, I should say, with Terry Funk and Cactus Jack and the fan getting burnt. Uh, with our guest, Joe Sposto, uh, you know, past commentator for Chikara, GCW, and a bunch of other promotions. He's on the show and was at that ECW Arena show. So we have his firsthand account, all sorts of other stuff from all over the world that week. Um, you can find that wherever you find podcasts. Just look. There are other podcasts named Between the Sheets, so just make sure it's the one hosted by Chris Elner and myself. And check that out. And we also have Patreon at patreon.com slash between the sheets where we do at least, you know, every month you'll always get a deep dive on a certain topic. The one that just went up is part four in a series of what'll probably be six episodes on the ECW on TNN run and all the insanity around that, which I've been learning a lot doing this. And I think the listeners have too, because there is a lot, especially in the torch because the, the Torch is the publication to read for ECW in that era because it was basically Jason Powell's whole job to report on ECW. Um, so there's a lot in there. And like I said, it's $5 a month to get the bonus shows. We've been doing, you know, over four years now of bonus shows, lots of deep dives. There are some if you want to hear what they're like in the free feed as well. We've put in uh, one of the shows we did on Global Wrestling Federation. We put together the two episodes we did on Herb Abram several months back when Dark Side of the Ring did their Herb Abrams episode, and this week we'll also be releasing for free the episode we did on uh, Sid Vicious's departure from WCW in 91 and his run WWF and how that all goes astray. So that's patreon.com slash between the sheets. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at David Bix, and also I have my substack, babyfacevheel.com, which, you know, newsletter slash blog, which is where I put basically the stuff I'm not putting up and elsewhere, but you know, I do break news there, like my Matt Riddle, Candy Cartwright stories are all up there. And uh, if you want to also support my work through there, you can. And we have the, uh, we, I have $5 a month or $50 a year subscriptions. And yeah, I try to put up sometimes some exclusive stuff for the subscribers. And now that this article is out to you, because there was a, I mean, I have banked, like I wanted to start the podcast for that blog, Babyface V Hill. But there was stuff I had banked, like I did two parts with David Roth on the Mushnick lawsuit, but I kind of wanted to wait till the article was out to be able to speak freely, I guess is the best way to put it. So hopefully that'll be coming soon as well. And uh, the podcast will be free, but like there will be extras once that starts going up. 
that uh, will be exclusive for subscribers. So everyone check that out. And thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure, uh, David. Uh, wonderful work on, on on this feature. Hope that there are more to come. Uh, so go to businessinsider.com. Follow him at David Bix on Twitter. Uh, we'll be back later tonight. Nate Milton is going to be joining me for Rewind to Raw as we, uh, as we go into the the federal election. So enjoy a day off tomorrow, Bix, as you uh, follow all of the election coverage. God knows oh, what's sure. in store. We're just watching here from Canada what, what's in store. Uh, I mean, it's enough that, like, let me put it this way. There is a there's a payment from Vice that I have to decide whether or not to get electron by wire transfer or check. And I'm trying to figure out right now if I want to if I want to have to fret about a check coming in the mail with everything going on <laughs> that I need. Oh, I, 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 I don't have the energy in me to, uh, to, to go into the election, but I'm sure we'll be chatting about it tonight with, uh, with Nate. So check all of that out. And uh, once again, a big thank you to David Bixon's fan for joining us here at Post Wrestling.